So, this is your opportunity to grill the three of them. You can ask all of the questions you want. So, um, well, that hand's early. You're very good at the questions. You've been my favorite questioner today because you've done all of them. Uh, coming back. Sorry, it's just it's a question I've been waiting to ask from the first presentation this afternoon because I want to ask it to all of you. It's basically, how do you do it? Uh, let me be more specific according to what you presented today. So how do you like not let the ego take on when the ego sometimes is some like represents some help to just keep on going when there's nothing to hang on to because knowledge like it's constantly changing so you have to hold on to something. How do you keep on going when you have so much so many questions to ask and then so so much to work on to answer this and when you have one question you have a hundred problems to solve to be able to answer it. And then how do you do it when you, you want to, for the farmers to have a better pay, I'd say in my field, baristas to have a better pay. When as the industry grow, the more the expectations get diluted because people get in the industry for like the fame of it and the hipster kind of side of it. They get a bit, the proportion of passionate people is a bit less and so it's harder and harder to achieve that quality. How do you not get desperate at some time and say, that's it, I'm giving up, like it's just too much, there's so many questions all the time. Because right now, I mean, I've had a lot of coffee this morning, I had a, quite a peak, and I was like, woohoo, it's great, and now it's kind of going down, and I see you all, and I'm like, oh my God, this is so much. Emergency coffee time. <laughs> <laughs> but you know when you hit that low, so how do you do it? How do you keep on going? Um, I think that uh, I can only speak for myself, but I think that a, a lot of people that I've talked to in coffee, we like it because it's constantly changing and we like that we're constantly figuring stuff out. So I think that's really inspiring to me is like, you know, I just get really excited about the long term knowledge. Um, I do think it takes a lot of time to learn something like somebody said what it takes like 10,000 hours to become a master at something to do latte art so I just get really excited about that like one year from now five years from now um, what am I going to be doing what am I going to know like what is coffee going to be um, and so that to me propels the day-to-day -day kind of focus that I need in my job and the patience that I need to sort of see it uh, to the end. It's an interesting question. Uh, um, uh, you know, I, I made a decision once when I actually studied uh, philosophy at the university and I made an assignment and it was really boring and it was uh, really a pain to get through. And then after that I made another assignment where I, I coincidence chose a subject I liked and it was very easy. And then I, at that point I decided, you know, I only want to do fun stuff. Because when I do fun stuff, there's a motor, you know, driving it that you know that's good it's just just completely something different so and and then i when i you know i don't have a, a job <laughs> well i do have a job but that's my own company and i just decided you know it has to be funny because if it's not i could just get a job you know and i didn't want a job so yeah, that's what drives me when when i find something that's fun it it, it, it you know it just creates its, its own momentum uh, so i guess that's 
weird answer to a special question. <laughs> and Grace? Yeah, I I want to have your job. It's just if it's just fun, because I think we all. Uh, I think for me, it's it's a. I want to have a meaningful job. I want to have a something, and and this is something when we founded our company, the four of us sat down. We agreed that this this project, um, if we could have the feeling that we wanted to go to work every morning and be happy about going to work, then that's a goal in itself, and. Um, and I think it's a goal that we also try very hard for all our staff to to be aware of that uh, they really need to feel that it's uh, that it's great to go to work. If they are unhappy about it and would rather call in sick, then we need to change something. Um, and I think it, it benefits that they also know that this is for us a life project. This is not just like a great marketing idea or you know we could have been an entrepreneur in some other business or something. This is a life project for us, something we want to do the rest of our life. And I think that uh, that motivates us uh, quite a lot. And for the the ego part, I think that it's it's for me at least paramount to have colleagues that you trust that can tell you when you're uh, talking bullshit, that can say like, yeah, get over yourself. <laughs> and it's uh, I think um, I think the people who have uh, competed a lot can agree that you can you can get a little high on yourself just after the competition. Then it's fantastic to have people that you trust telling you, yeah, okay. You're good. It's fine. Yeah, you're good. Go do the dishes. <laughs> that is actually my favorite thing. After winning the WBC, I was back at the state coffee, and um, I had pulled out the ice machine and was scrubbing the floor underneath when a customer came in and asked, "Like, didn't someone from here just win the world championship?" And my colleague Linus took one step to the side. Yeah, it's him. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, more questions, Tibor. Thank you. Um, this question is inspired by Klaus's presentation, but it's directed to all. Um, I think it's amazing what you guys are doing and many others, uh, leading by example, uh, setting a new standard. But I also, correct me if I'm wrong, I, uh, if I'm wrong, I think the Coffee Collective did go on the offensive in some cases where some companies were using the direct trade moniker without it being direct trade. And this is the question. Uh, do you think that we should go on the offensive uh, against some companies that are kind of mimicking or, you know, falsifying uh, uh, the good stuff? And uh, yeah, or or is it just leading by example? I think uh, I don't know if we've been on, on the offensive. We've we've tried at least very hard to just focus on what we do. Um, the backstory to to this whole direct trade thing is that when we founded our company, we sat down and had these ideas about how we wanted to trade coffee based on years of experience. And Peter, who is our director and co-founder, had he had been a co-owner of another roastery and had many years experience uh, buying green coffee and so on. And um, we just saw a lot of things that were broken, a lot of things that we didn't agree with the way things worked. And uh, we made like a list for ourselves of like, what should we do? It's like I said, it's not enough to just pay a lot of money. Like I think you really need to go and have a, a relationship with the farmers and meet them every year and come back again and again and again and talk about what you want and show this appreciation. So that was one of the things. And then when we had this list around the same time, um, Jeff Watts, a uh, green coffee buyer from Intelligentia, I hope you all know who he is. He, uh, he wrote a blog post uh, explaining their way of doing direct trade. Um, and we knew that uh, counterculture, for example, were doing an amazing job uh, with direct trade and also using this term. We contacted uh, uh, Jeff Watts from Intelligentsia and asked him, like, how would you feel about 
that we started using direct trade because we could see the benefit of having something that is uh, quite quickly uh, read and understandable for the consumer when you don't have 30 minutes to explain all these things, something where they could easily pick it up. Um, and he was like, yeah, go for it. It's like, he, I trust you guys to, to do a good job with it. And then he gave us an advice, trademark it. Trademark it in Denmark so that you can control that it doesn't get misused. Because already then, in 2007, counterculture and intelligentsia had huge problems with other companies marketing things as direct trade when it was just bought through a, a trader. And, uh, and we took that advice and we, uh, we put some uh, very few rules for what direct trade is that is all on the roastery. It's not on the farmer. I think you don't get to demand anything from the farmers until you bag it up from the roastery uh, point of view. And so we did this in Denmark and then uh, it, it works great. There's, uh, you know, it's not to hold it for ourselves. There's, I think now four other Danish roasters also working with direct trade. And we, uh, we check that they do the right things. Um, and uh, yeah, but of course, you know, outside of Denmark, we, don't, we can't control that at all. And I think uh, by now, I think, I don't know, I think in the specialty coffee circles, direct trade has lost a lot of meaning because it's been misused in so much. Uh, personally, I feel a little like I'm done talking to coffee people about direct trade. It's not, uh, I rather want to talk about what's behind it, like the things I've just been talking about. But to consumers, I still think it's very valuable. Like, there's a lot of consumers in Denmark who now know and trust that, hey, at least it has some more meaning. It goes beyond the other things. It's at least a starting point. And I think it's, it's, it's really important that we have something to commit to. Um, it's kind of like uh, one of my favorite restaurants in Copenhagen. They went completely organic, 100% certified organic. Because they were sick and tired of hearing all these other restaurants saying like, oh yeah, we buy organic, everything is organic. And they knew that it was bullshit. They knew that it was like maybe half of it was organic and there was nothing to back it up. And people were saying like, oh no, no, we trust them, they're, they're good. But it's like, when you're saying something, you need to be able to back it up. You need to have proof of it. And that's what I think the, the certifications can do. But I should give them my <laughs> Can I just ask a quick question on that one, Klaus, before you do, Katie? It's like, so, um, do you think there's a danger of just saying that direct trade, though, is the only... Just as fair trade yes, in the early yes, times, that this is the only way to buy yes, coffee. If you don't it buy it not, this way, you're yeah. the devil. It's and not the only way. Yeah. Let me make that completely clear. I, I don't believe it's the only way. But I believe that, that uh, transparency is really, really important. Yeah. And um, when we say direct trade, I mean, it, it can mean different things. For us, it's really important that you can document what the farmer has gotten. Yeah. And you can do that through... Uh, importers and exporters as well. Yeah. You can uh, buy coffee through, uh, as I said before, a Nordic approach or a collaborative or cafe imports and they can show you what has gone down to the farmer. You can demand that. But I think it requires that you demand it as well. And it's the same thing if we buy a coffee in Kenya, there might be a, uh, there's a marketing agent uh, who will also export the coffee. That's by law that has to be. But we can still go to them and demand. Uh, we need to know exactly what percentage uh, they have gotten for uh, dry milling and hand sorting the coffee and we can demand that we have a contract that the farmer has signed and we can on our part call the the factory and make sure that they have received the money we transferred directly on their bank account and that's the kind of work that i think is required if you really want to back it up can i just follow that up with a story with about close uh, last year while i was in kenya um i visited one of the washing stations that coffee collective are really famous for buying from like it's it's their coffee for me in my mind it's their coffee 
but I cooked it and I fell in love with it and I know that you didn't buy all of it. So I sent an email to Clay, said to politeness, just saying, look, I'm, I'm at this washing station, I'm, I'm really liking the coffee, I want to buy it, is this cool? And it wasn't, uh, how are you going to market it, how are you going to do it, what are you going to do, reply. It was like, as long as you pay what we're paying, I don't care. Like, and I think that's very, um, it, it's kind of, that transparency part is, is super important. You know, we had the conversation, how much they were paying, we made sure we were paying what Coffee Collective were paying as well. So then it's, it's an equally good relationship because they get to sell more coffee. But I, that w the conversation I've had with other roasters when I've been in the same situation, it's about oh, where you're going to sell it, who's going to be having it, what, you know, where's it going to be. And I thought it was really interesting that the first line was, as long as you pay what we're paying, that's fine. So, yeah, back to you. Um, Katie, sorry. Um, yeah, I do no. want you to talk, I promise. That's okay. <laughs> um, this is actually a really uh, interesting time at Counterculture because we are moving away from our direct trade certification program. Um, we were one of the first companies, I would say, in the United States to embrace um, direct trade um, and create a certification. And I don't know if we're, we were still the only now, but we uh, created a criteria for the purchase of the coffee. Again, not for the farmers, but for what needed to be transparent about it and what needed to happen. And then we had a third party actually come in and check that we did all of those things in order for us to put the sticker on the bag. So all of our coffees were never direct trade. Like it's kind of the goal, but um, we, you know, we weren't just saying like, oh, all of our coffees are direct trade. Um, but what that did was it created a false dichotomy between the goodness of our purchase. You know, it, it like, it, the same thing that Fairtrade did, it said these coffees are in a different tier um, than these. And, you know, we had this specific criteria that would exclude a lot of things from being able to be direct trade because it was a privately owned washing station. So there wasn't any fair trade transparency in terms of how much um, farmers are selling cherry for. Um, they're just acting as a business. They're just selling their cherry. So it wasn't really fair for us to impose that standard on the farms. So anyways, what we're doing is we're moving towards 100% transparency. So before our transparency report reported on all of our direct trade coffees in terms of the quality, the price, all that stuff. And now we're doing it for everything that we buy, like even spot coffee that we buy from importers when we have a need. We're going to tell everyone how much we paid for all of our coffees. And we're going to take the label off the bags, and it's going to make it hard. It's really confusing for people because uh, we presented it at this as this really altruistic and good thing in coffee. And I think that it is, but to get to your question, I think that innovate is the way, you know, rather than, you know, point fingers at other people and what they're doing wrong. Really try to make what you're doing right even better. Um, Morton, I mean, you... Uh, you know, you're a scientist man, but you obviously worked in a roastery as well before you were you were a roaster. So, um, tell us a little bit about your experiences of that kind of the the, the buying practices and and how important you feel that is. Yeah, it's it's not something that I you know do on a daily basis, so I don't have uh, you know personal experiences uh, like that. But um, it's uh, you know. I've been a bit frustrated, you know, with the with, with the certification systems not, you know, delivering in the sense that um, that it, it seems like many people just gave up, you know, and that was uh, pretty frustrating. So I'm very very excited about you know hearing about all this, and and it seems like there's a new new hope for 
making something that 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 works um, because you know that it's yeah as I said you know one thing is that you have a business that's lucrative but uh, it's another thing to also you know be really happy about what you do and I think this is an extra important step and you know um, I've been thinking a lot you know what's the CSR uh, 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 politics of, of coffee mind and uh, at the moment we don't have any activities but I've had I have a I really have some serious thoughts about uh, about this and especially when I you know heard Klaus's presentation I thought yeah I do this you know <laughs> so um, yeah um, yeah I, I think it's great that there's a, a perhaps a new wave of, 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 of making a difference uh, because I've, I've been frustrated for some years you know what what can we do anyway you know, the certification systems failed and you know so it's just been frustrating I think also there's an element of, uh, you know, I'm going to use Counterculture and Coffee Collective as the two examples because you're on stage, but like, I know when I buy coffee from you guys that you've done a good job because there's a trust element between, you know, me purchasing from you. I, I expect you to do a good job. And I think you kind of tend to find out those ones that are abusing the term very easily. It can, again, consumers aren't stupid. Um, I think they're very good at picking up on those things. Uh, another question from the audience? Hey, um, my question is directed toward, towards Klaus again around the ethical responsibility of the coffee community. I once questioned, it was a few years ago, about an origin of a coffee and whether it was ethically sourced. And the response I got was, here's some photos of some happy middle-aged men smiling for the cameras while picking coffee beans. And then the res direct response was, well, we're actually not Amnesty International. And I found it really discouraging and quite upsetting because I was like, well, actually, I do want to work in, a, in an ethical industry. So my question is, do you think it's appropriate that the, the coffee industry internationally sets up a system of internal regulation like the old professions, like accountants and lawyers, where it's, a, um, it's an internal responsibility system? And do you think there's actually a duty of care to the industry? That's, that's beyond whether it's marketable or whether it's cool or whether you, you, know, you want to do a little bit of difference, whether yeah. there's a duty. I think, um, if, if you remember that graph I had um, of the payment to farmers, um, in the, I think it was the late 90s, the uh, ICO fell together. Um, and that was a, regular, a regulation of the coffee market. And um, I'm in certain circles, I'll be very unpopular by saying this, but uh, I'm a huge believer in uh, regulation of the market. Uh, I think the financial crisis have shown us that some regulation is needed. I think for coffee, I think we need a regulation of the market, honestly. I think it's, it's still, coffee in general is still based on post-colonial structures. There's still a huge um, sh uh, like a shift in power, like the, the buyers have a lot more power than the sellers, and um, and I think it's a it's a problem. I think you know, in my ideal world, there would be a regulation of the entire coffee market that would uh, that would be the price that uh, fair trade is based on, because fair trade is based on a calculation of what it takes for a farmer to survive on producing coffee, not to make an exceptional living or produce quality coffee, but just this is what you need to produce coffee and have a living, basically. And I really think that would be uh, fantastic. I am unfortunately not enough optimist to think it's going to happen, unfortunately. But, um, but I think it would, 
it would make so much sense. Um, and I think it could secure that we would get much, much better coffee in the future. Um, I agree with everything that Klaus said, but I want to add something that I've been thinking about lately um, that I heard on uh, the Sweet Maria's podcast. And something that uh, Tom said was that um, charity isn't helpful and that it's his responsibility as a coffee buyer not to buy something at a price that if he went out of business and he couldn't buy that coffee anymore, or if the quality went down and he couldn't buy that coffee anymore, that that coffee wouldn't have a market, if that makes sense. So just sort of tying what you're doing to the long-term viability of a farmer um, and not making it about your necessarily being the contingent on them making a living, that the market can sustain them to make a living, which I think is sort of building on what you're saying. I think also there's the, you know, we're at a very pointy end of the industry, which is a, a very small portion um, of coffee buying. I think that regulation doesn't necessarily have to happen with what we're doing. It's what the bigger guys are doing. That's where the regulation really needs to kick in. That's where it can make a real difference to people's lives, which will ultimately impact on us because if they're paying more, we, we can charge more because consumers are used to being paying more for coffee because coffee is too cheap. I mean, it's, it is just way too cheap. Um, but if we can get the big guys to start charging more, we charge more, we can pay more for that pointy end of what we do. But I think regulation is something that's so important to the commodity market, not necessarily our market. Um, another question? It's, it's not a question, sorry. <laughs> so. Um, there was this uh, global coffee forum in Milan uh, just at the beginning of uh, October, and uh, there was uh, so they, they targeted most of the points that you, you targeted. It was m mainly the big industry, and uh, I found very interesting because there was, uh, of course, there might be many criticism, and it's just to say that uh, the industry is kind of trying to find a solution on these uh, financial problems. Hopefully, they will do it if uh, we get some hope. And, uh, and uh, there was this Nespresso CEO that took the uh, uh, speech and he said, we are trying to, which is, of, of course, they are Nestle. I'm not saying that. Uh, they said, we are trying to decommoditize, de I don't know how you say that, uh, the coffee price. And I found that even though we, they, they might, they, there are many criticisms to, uh, to address, uh, I found that this idea was very interesting when you look at uh, coffee industry in general. So just uh, and I think I've yet to find a coffee farmer that dislikes selling their commodity coffee to somebody like Nespresso. Um, just as they're quite happy for Illy to come along and Starbucks to come along. I think that those farmers tend to like those guys coming because it's easy, they buy a lot and they pay a much better price. It's really the commodity market stuff where stuff's getting sold anonymously and then being bought spot by brokers. And you know that, that's, that's where the real issues in our pricing in, in, in this industry lie, is with those ones, not necessarily with the Nespresso's, you know. They tend to, farm, producers tend to like them. Um, another question? This is just a quick one. I don't want to go. Don't want to go back to the because you've discussed buying and trade and stuff. Um, so you were talking about uh, direct trade and then talking about fair trade as kind of a, a precursor. I still have. I had three people in my shop last week ask if I was fair trade or not. Um, 
So how how do I add like and they've said like oh are you fair trade? I only buy fair trade. Like how do I answer that question to somebody without like really like offending or damaging their belief system to the extent that like they they probably won't come back. Because I tried I I tried and I totally tripped over myself. <laughs> somebody help. <laughs> I know it's an old argument. This but is a rough one. <laughs> yeah, but um, like they're a bit slow on the uptake. Uh, I mean, I think the answer before would have been, you know, we are direct trade. Like a lot of our coffees are direct trade. Um, now for us, it's going to be, you know, we're 100% transparent about the prices that we buy. Um, and hopefully that transparency is going to create some sort of stability within our supply chain and within the market. Um, but this is just a side note. I had an opportunity to travel with somebody from Fairtrade recently in Uganda, um, Colleen Anunu, who's an independent contractor. And um, I think that the work that Fairtrade does is awesome. And the level, like the people that go in and the questions that they ask um, of cooperatives and the level of transparency that they're able to shake out from there, I just can't imagine me being able to do that. Um, with all of the potential coffees that we buy. So I'm pretty into fair trade. I mean, I don't want to buy 100% fair trade coffee. I don't want to buy 100% anything. I think that diversity is good. But um, I, yeah, to answer that question, I guess I would just say like trying not to throw that certification under the bus because I think that it does a lot of good. Yeah, I don't know if I should follow up, but uh were they able to document more than the uh, the price paid to the primary cooperative? No, and that that's for me is a little bit the issue that uh, I mean it's not it's not to throw fair trade under the bus. I do think it would be fantastic if everybody would commit to at least fair trade. Um, I do see the difficulties that what we're working with is much more costly for a farmer than the price that we get for a fair trade uh, minimum price. And I do think they lack the, le the levels of transparency that we want, that you can go down uh, further than the exporting cooperative. Because sometimes, you know, in Nicaragua, you can have an exporting cooperative, but then there's like five next cooperatives. And how the money is the dispersed between them, uh, we've at least never been able to get the kind of transparency that we really want. Um, but you've got to st start somewhere. And it's, uh, you know, I, I really think that the people who work in fair trade, I met a, a number of them and they, you know, they have really good intentions. And uh, I think that, I think we can do better. I think we can, um, we can, for example, say that, you know, when, when there's, you know, an example is if a, if a consumer goes into a supermarket and see two identical coffees from a country or, or uh, from Nicaragua, let's say that, and one is fair trade certified and it costs 20% more than the other. If those 20% had gone to the farmer, that would be really interesting. But unfortunately, with fair trade, there's a bunch of steps in the in the middle way that can make more money on fair trade. Um, and fair trade argues that it's it's necessary because otherwise there's no financial incentive for the uh, brokers, the middlemen, or the roasteries to do fair trade. I would disagree. I would say that the incentive is that you can sell the coffee to begin with. That the consumer would be more happy to buy that product, um, so you would sell more of it. Yeah, because realistically, the, the, the price difference is maybe less than 1% that you would actually pay more if it's just what got to the farmer. I think there's also the interesting argument of farmers that can be excluded from fair trade. So if you exclusively bought fair trade, there's a whole heap of farmers in the world that can't sell you their coffee. There, there are plans afoot, but, but I think the other thing is to think of as well, that you, we talked about 
commodity grade coffee here, it, the majority, a lot, I mean, I know there are some fair trade, uh, higher quality, but the majority of fair trade that is sold is sold to the, the big roasters. And we talked about that level of regulation. I think, again, it's a level of regulation that is good for those people uh, on that entry level. And I, I agree with Clay, so at least like everybody is a minimum to be buying fair trade and then building from there. When you buy fair trade coffee, though, you don't have to pay just the minimum price. Like you can attach a quality um, incentive and a quality premium to that. So for I sure. think that, you know, part of what you can say is, you know, for you as a roaster, you can say, we do buy some fair trade coffee. We don't buy it at the fair trade price. Uh, we work with co ops that are fair trade certified and we pay more for quality. Uh, and we do that across the board, regardless of whether or not the cooperative is fair trade certified. Another question? Yeah, I was actually going to ask more than a question. So this is a bit pie in the sky, but if there was like any project you could do, like no limit on the number of people, the money, anything, like some scientific unknown in coffee you'd really like to tackle, what might it be? That, that would be the next step of the, the roasting defects because it's at the moment it was really crude and you know the, your first step in a new research area needs to be you know as simple as possible to get a result and once you've got a result you can think of the next uh, step. So because I, I roast coffee I really want to uh, dig into this much deeper um, and, uh, and, and do much more chemical analysis. Uh, the, the, the roast defects that I showed you was uh, analyzed also aroma chemically and we actually got some marker, uh, marker molecules also and I want to go much deeper in this um, and uh, I have some plans on how to uh, get even more funding because it, it takes a lot of money to, to do some bigger stuff so uh, so that that's that's probably my personal uh, next dream project um, but also the sensory stuff that we do with Ida uh, my, my colleague Ida um, with sensory performance is something that we will hopefully run a, an industrial PhD in coffee mine from March and I'm really really excited about that because that's about you know training speed how to you know take a random person map them and then do like this with our sensory skills and I, I think that's uh, that's an amazing potential because so many people don't know their skills and that goes for really experienced people and beginners uh, so I'm really excited about that and so that's kind of my two uh, project the, the milk thing is just you know for fun because that I'm not even a barista so but uh, <laughs> so uh, but um, yeah so it's definitely roasting and sensory that's my main uh, interest at the moment I really hoped you were going to say coffee transformers or something like that or <laughs> another question uh, that's a general question to three of you because you represent three different types of the industry and it also applies what Tim starts doing with his new project. And I want to ask, because we as a baristas, as a roasters, we apply science on every step of our work. We measure the coffee, we scale it, we measure pH, TDS, everything that's possible, still while the coffee is being produced like ages before. It's really old school job. And we all know the global warming is coming and in a few years, well, in a few decades, we're going to run out of the coffee lands to, to grow the coffee. So do you think that we shouldn't start helping the farmers using the new science we possess in order to produce the coffee or to make the coffee trees more sustainable, not to have the 
crisis like it was a few years ago in Brazil when fungus killed almost 40% of the, of the crops in the whole country. Uh, some people think that it's not organic, it's, it's not going to be good, but do you think it's a good way of doing things in order to help the community last longer and get the better crops? I'm not sure that it's a question about lack of knowledge uh, because, uh, well, I'm not a green coffee specialist, but, but I've seen there's a lot of work on the green coffee uh, side of it, not necessarily on the quality, but on the, you know, the, uh, uh, yeah, all the agricultural aspects of, of, of keeping a crop. And, and uh, there's a lot of pretty strong and wealthy organizations um, uh, dealing with that. So I'm not sure that we in Europe, for example, at universities, has got anything to, to teach people about, you know, leaf rust and and all those things. Uh, so I'm not sure that lack of knowledge is, is what, you know... Yeah, but 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 you don't. I mean, the the whole science thing that's knowledge, right? So so I I think that you know there's there's plenty of that. You know, uh, I've been at Anna Cafe in Guatemala, for example. I don't feel that I have something to teach them when it comes to you know uh, fertilizers and, and and you know plant biology and stuff like that. So. I'll say that I do think there's a lack of knowledge on the green side of things in, in terms of growing, and I think uh, it's incredibly interesting what Tim is doing with his farm because. A bunch of roasteries, us included, we've tried to do um, projects with the different farmers, uh, different experiments and processing and so on. And uh, and if, if you do it in the most sensible way, for me, I think that you, you, you don't start first year with doing it. You start doing it once you have a relationship with the farm. And then you as a roaster take all the risk. Because you can manage the risk, you can afford it, the farmers can't, they shouldn't be put up with the risk. But it's, it's always difficult because you're... You're there maybe twice a year, or like I think even the best buyers are there maybe three times a year. Uh, Timothy Hill it travels like insane amount, but still it's you know he only has so many hours a, a day. Uh, where what Tim can do is to say like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna do this project I'm gonna take all the risk and I'm gonna try to see if I can show a way of doing it organically, which is incredibly impressive. Tim has worked with some. Uh, some farmers in Brazil who are like, in my book, some of the ones that, that knows the most about organic coffee and still they always say that, well, when you switch to organic, you lose 50%. Maybe, maybe Tim will be able to show that's not the case. And I think when you when you go to a lot of the producing countries, you, um, you know, the farmer's education level in terms of coffee production is uh, it's very much handed down from their parents. And maybe if they're lucky, they have access to some agronomists or some uh, field technicians. Um, and these kind of extension services are, in a lot of countries, educated in the 80s. They're educated in the way that, uh, that you, in France, were growing wine in the 60s. It means that you see problem A and you have spray B to, to fix this problem. It means that uh, you see the, the tree is deficient in this, you put in PK in the soil and you treat it and whoopsie, you get good uh, practice. But that's not necessarily the best way and I think uh, I think you are right. I think there is some knowledge out there. I think uh, if you look at organic uh, vegetable production in Denmark, there's so much knowledge. I've met a, a farmer who's like a rock star uh, vegetable uh, farmer in Denmark, delivers to Norma and so on. And he uh, he's like he, he doesn't believe there's any um, any problem that he has that can't be treated in an organic way. 
Yeah, I think this is a this is a tough question, and I'm just sort of getting into the uh, traveling and sort of like working on project side of things. So I don't have a ton of experience yet, but I do think that it's good to be conscious about our limitations. Like I'm not a farmer, I'm not an agronomist, and so I think it would be dangerous of me to go into a place and make concrete sort of suggestions about what somebody should and shouldn't do with their coffee. At the same time, um, I think that, you know, how you buy coffee and like which coffee you buy matters so you can send a message through the marketplace that way. And I think that, you know, letting the experts and leaving room for experts and for cooperatives to solve their own problems is good. Like working, um, if you're a coffee shop, you want to work with a roaster that contributes to world coffee research because they're actually doing work um, to fix the global warming problem. Um, I kind of got lost, but that's sort of <laughs> what I think is better rather than seeing myself as the solution. I think that's where a huge amount of uh, admiration and praise must go to Tim in actually saying, I want to do this stuff, but I'm going to do it on my own farm and I'm going to do it on my own coin out my own pocket. And I think you see so many uh, green buyers going to Origin and saying, oh, we should do this and we're going to do this and do this and then really not taking that responsibility. What you said, close about, you know, you back it up and you buy it if it's good, bad, yeah. or indifferent. You have to take that hit. Exactly. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's very important. But I also think, uh, I talked to Tim about this uh, on the break earlier. This, uh, I don't think the message Tim is trying to send, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, roasters should start buying land and do uh, coffee farming. I think uh, Tim has gotten to this point, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but because he didn't see an alternative and he wanted to get involved in this. And it's fun, it's a great project for him to, uh, to feel like uh, the growth in terms of what you understand. But for us, it's, it's not something like we we wouldn't want to own a coffee farm. I still, still think there's a lot of these post-colonial structures that are really inherent. If, if you look at how coffee trading is done, especially on a commercial basis all the way uh, around the globe, it's the old colonizing uh, colonization powers, the countries that had colonies that are still sitting on a majority of these import-export positions. Uh, so we're like it's it's only 54 years ago since uh, Kenya got the independence. It's not a long time ago. They still remember it. They still oh, call don't make me say sorry again. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, not my fault. Yeah. I'm English. It's okay. <laughs> Just don't do it again. I promise we won't. <laughs> I, I've learned my lesson. Um, <laughs> um, one more time for one more question before we wrap up the day. So you can be the last question of the day, unless I steal one at the end. Um, That question is for you, Morton. Uh, it's a science uh, question. You know, at Kew Gardens, they're doing uh, this project to serve uh, wild Arabica from Ethiopia. And they're thinking, or oh, what is they doing? Uh, incorporating Robusta into the wild Arabica to make it much stronger and just much more resistant to leaf roast. I'd like to know, I know a lot of people are against the fact that uh, Robusta can touch wild Arabica because they say it's not completely Robusta, but it's if at the end we have a, a good, uh, uh, I would say, a, a stronger Arabica, do you think that is a good thing, is a bad thing? Uh, yes, well, that's a difficult question. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I'm, I'm not a green coffee specialist, no, I'm uh, uh, very skilled in, in genetics, but, um, you know, um, 
yeah, one of the things they also want to do is uh, increase the uh, genetic diversity uh, to, to get better resistance to, uh, to pests so they cannot spread that quickly. But, you know, in a sense, I think, you know, why, why not experiment with, with trying to, you know, mix them uh, and, and see if you can get the, you know, uh, the robustness of the robusta and, and the nice taste of Arabica. Because this is, uh, this is done all the time with, you know, dogs and horses and stuff like that. You know, you want to improve, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, properties of the, yeah, of the organism. And uh, so I think that's, you know, great that these projects are running. And also, know, I know in Kenya, they are working a lot with that so I think it's uh, you know it's a good thing uh, to, certainly if it's that the if that's the only way we can get a you know keep on getting good coffee but um, yeah I'm, I'm not a I'm not really a specialist in this area so I'm, I'm afraid I cannot just say something else now I think it's a great idea and I would love to do the sensory profiling to, to prove you know uh, if it tastes nice uh, the new hybrid but uh, yeah okay <laughs> they do Cool. On Saturday, so I extend my next London stay. See, England isn't all that bad place. <laughs> we are okay. We do some good stuff too. <laughs> um, I'm sure you'll have found this as interesting and as informative as I have. Please can give a big round of applause for this afternoon's panel. Thank you.